Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Robert Matza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Benoit Chalant. Benoit is the author of Violence and Representation in the Arab Uprisings, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. This book is an outstanding and really unique work, which provides the reader with an enticing account of the plays of political violence, and a fascinating analysis of the role of representation in and around the Arab revolutions that took place in 2011. It is also an intellectually fluent work which expands our understanding of these events and their aftermath. Benoit Chalant combines historical and contemporary research, and he brings an original perspective to the analysis of the Arab uprisings. He compares Tunisia and Yemen to their colonial histories and contemporary conflicts. He explores the role of violence in popular protest, their representations in graffiti and other form of art, and the emergence of new forms of citizenship. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Benoit, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Now, let's start with a simple question if it can that be simple. Can you tell us something about yourself and the origins of the book? Well, there are multiple origins to the book. Uh, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm a researcher from Switzerland originally. I did my studies in SOAS, my master's studies. I'm a historian and Greek philologist originally in Switzerland, working on Trotsky's party in Switzerland, my first book. And then I, I moved to uh, Middle Eastern studies with study at SOAS. And then I did my PhD at the European University Institute in political sociology, political science, working on question of, of democracy. So I've always been interested in question of mobilization, participation. Um, but uh, at the time I started my PhD studies, civil society was a big topic. I hated the topic of civil society because there is a lot of expectation from the liberal uh, vein of the literature in the 90s, early 2000s. Yet, I thought it was interesting to have an imminent critique of civil society. And this is what I did with my first book on Palestinian civil society. Um, And then more and more, of course, with the Arab uprisings in 2011, I don't use the phrase Arab Spring for all the reasons that have been already discussed, Orientalist, uh, kind of teleology, etc. I prefer having a vision of, you know, uh, ongoing modes of participation from below. So with the Arab Uprisings 2011, then the, the shift of my interest moved to citizenship, mobilization, etc. So I'm a historian sociologists interested in political processes, um, very much interdisciplinary. I am an associate professor at the New School for Social Research in New York, which you know, and maybe the audience knows as well, it's it's a place with a long tradition of historical sociology, interdisciplinary studies, and theoretical focus. So having been at the New School for Social Research since 2015 really helped me grounded, uh, grounding this, this research, this book, with an array of, of theoretical questions, which I'm sure we'll, we will discuss. But, you know, I, I feel like as a European, having worked in the Middle East, I'm trying to straddle those two worlds and suture them and, and bring a dialogue between European history or Euro-American history and Middle Eastern history. We will certainly talk about methodology later, but the, the one thing that struck me was really uh, the interdisciplinary approach that is so tangible and visible throughout your book. And I think this is a, you know, a great appeal for readers. And, uh, you know, you may have historians, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, scholars of politics and international relations that really can feel familiar and at ease 
reading your narrative. But let me start uh, with something that really struck me at the very beginning of the book. So the book starts with uh, an analysis of a famous song, Bella Ciao. Bella Ciao is a very famous Italian song. I'm Italian. Uh, It's connected with the uh, uh, war against the Nazi. Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was also brought back uh, in fashion with a famous uh, TV series, uh, the Spanish TV series, uh, La Casa del Papel, uh, in English, Money uh, East. And I was wondering if you can speak about the choice to open the book with a discussion about this song. Yeah, I mean, there's... The, the the song is of course in Italy extremely popular, uh, and as the audience knows, this this song has been also very popular in Arab uh, in Arab countries in the last three four four years or so. It's been translated in 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 Lebanon, uh, in Iraq, and then of course with the uh, protests of the women's protests, uh, women's freedom, dignity uh, protests in Iran. It has also been translated in, in Persian. So it, it is a, real, a, rally, a rallying song uh, that people know and that somehow, you know, uh, and give courage to the people to, to move together. So this is a song that has a certain charisma. It's known abroad, etc. although it has this, this Italian origin. So why did I take this uh, song? I, I, I really want to underline that this is something that I had already in mind well before 2019. I think that's when the song becomes popular in, in Lebanon, in Iraq, etc. It, it, it is a song that in Italy you hear all the time. And there is a famous spectacle show in the 60s, Bella Ciao, which was a spectacle about popular culture and there are two versions of the song as you know Roberto there is a long slow version which is the rice weeders the women who are bent you know bending their 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 back and and working in harsh conditions and they complain about this permanent condition of harsh labor and then there's the the much faster paced version of Bella Ciao which is the resistance song uh and it's it's this it's it's, it, it's this it captures the 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 incredible moment of coming together with the need to resist Nazi uh, Germany. And the song is much fast. In the spectacle in the 60s, the two versions of the song intertwine. So it starts with a slow, and then at the end of the song, there is the fast version. Una mattina appena alzato, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. So it's the double speed, if you want. And so this, the, 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 this two level of the speed made me think of a metaphor that I could use for the book. Um, the book is quite long, you know, it's 450 pages. It has, you know, a long historical part, historical sociology. And so I thought in the, in the first five pages of the book, I give a snapshot of what this book is. And this book is both a slow song and it's also a fast song. Basically, the story of the Arbor Prizing, the revolutionary moment, the incredible effervescence ought to be read in relation to the very slow pace of citizenship that comes and goes, a lot of frustration. So this is that's that's how I, I use this song. And then of course, then when I finished writing the book, then I, I realized that there was this, you know, the, the, this translation of Bella Chai in Arabic, which was also fitting because it it also illustrates part of the argument that I make in the book which is even if the Arab uprisings of 2011 didn't deliver fully democratic regimes and, and system, et cetera, we still have a legacy, a cultural legacy that is alive, just like the song we can listen back to, Bella Ciao. I must say that this was a, a unique way, at least for me, to look at Bella Ciao. And certainly the first time I looked at that song from a very different perspective than the one I was normally uh, used to and certainly taught uh, throughout Italian school. So uh, it was just a, a sort of a revelation for me to look at this song and try to use the text and the way it's been used uh, in a very different context. Now, right. And I, if I just may add, Robert, in, Roberto, in, in, the, in this opening pages, I give the, the full translation, the Italian versions of the two songs, and then with an English translation. And I play also with social theory, which is how do people know that they come together, right? And I use small example of the text that reveals 
how a construction of a collective of a we uh, is created in specific moments. And this is also a thread more of social theory, sociological theory that that is built in in the book. Just just a little footnote, sorry, to to connect to the Bella Ciao. Yeah, and, and Bella Ciao really connects also to the question uh, that you discuss in the book. You connecting state violence with representation, and Bella Ciao is really about violence, even though it's not necessarily mentioned there. But given the context, uh, it is about you know the war and you know sort of the fight against the Nazi regime, but also the other version is about a different form of violence, which is the exploitation of women in the in the field. Now. Can you speak about the goals of the book, connecting again state violence and representation? Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you, you captured the, the different forms of violence, right? Because the book is trying to show that, you know, when we say violence, we think of a destroyed building, you know, uh, uh, an assassination, etc. And of course, there are all sorts of violence. There is gendered form of violence and there is silence form of, of, of violence. There is symbolic forms of violence. And one, of, you know, one word that could appear in the title of the book would be margins, right? How margins, uh, symbolic margins, not physical margins, not geographical margins automatically, uh, uh, are the object of specific forms of violence that are generally overlooked. So there is this, this, this idea that I want to look, I wanted to look at historically how violence has been um, constructed and, and acted towards margins, like the woman working in the rice fields. Uh, and yet they are able to enact a sense of collective subjectivity. Uh, but there is also the um, the revolutionary violence that is the Bella Ciao, the partisan version, which is resisting injustice uh, in Arabic. So I was interested in this question of violence and representation uh, in that, if you want, in this uh, distributive way, understanding how violence is enacted differently in different parts of territories. And that brought me to think of why do we have statements that are often heard in media, but also in academia, namely that the Middle East is a violent place. And usually we associate Europe or Euro-America to be a place of peace. And as historians, we very much know that this is untenable and that we need to put together in a relational manner the absence of violence in one place, the here of Euro-America with the extra violence, the surplus of violence in the there, in the periphery. So that's another dimension of violence. And, and then I look in the Arab Middle East themselves, uh, countries themselves, looking at how state violence is at play. And so this is, if you want, like looking at the political sociology of violence, and I play with the word of representation, which in English, in French, uh, is the same word. But if you say representation in Arabic or in certain language like German, for example, Marx, Karl Marx, etc., representation has two meanings. Representation is cultural representation, taswir, in Arabic, and political representation. Tamthil, siyasi, so representation of the people. And so the book plays on the duality of the term representation as cultural representation or self-representation as opposed to or in connection with political representation. And so I don't oppose the two, but I put them together. Um, and, you know, so the goal of the book is in a way... I don't want to say it's a criticism of Edward Said, but there is something problematic in the way Orientalist has become this very important uh, influential book and that has, uh, you know, led people such as Timothy Mitchell to write, for example, Colonizing Egypt, an amazing book. But, you know, the point of representation in this literature tends to focus on cultural representation. Think of it with Said, right? Is is the cultural domination, cultural imperialism, etc. So language, the post-structural focus on the subject being crystallized in the, the language, etc. So you know, I'm I'm fine with the the the, the role that cultural representation play in domination in, in Euro-American hegemony, but we have to be careful not to overlook the agency of political representation by 
the people themselves. So that was the idea is to see how the art people are using the question of violence representation in a way that connects cultural and political representation. And just to conclude, you know, I, I mentioned Edward Said. It's it's a little jab at Edward Said, you know, full respect for the work. But, you know, the exerg that he has in the beginning of Orientalism is, is a quote from the 18th Brumaire of Karl Marx. Peasants cannot represent themselves. They must be represented. Right. And in the context of that's the quote of Marx. In the context of Orientalism, we think that it's a question of how peasants are represented as backward or uneducated, etc. In reality, Marx was talking of Vertretung, not Darstellung. Vertretung is the German version of political representation, Tamthilsiasi in Arabic, and not self-representation or Darstellung in German, Taswir. Uh, so I, I, I think that Edward Said kind of misleads a bit of the, the field, the study of representation. And so I wanted to reconnect these two aspects of representations. And I want to push a little bit more on the question of terminology and methodology. So there are certainly key terms in the book, like violence that you mentioned, but also this populi. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about these terms, particularly about the uh, formative value. And this is my interpretation of violence, or, or at least a, a, an aspect of violence. And also at the same time, if you can give us a sense of your methodological approach uh, in general. Right. So the, 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 I want to dwell first on vis populi. So vis populi is a phrase that I coined, and it's a Latin phrase. So it's not uh, a category of practice. It's a category of analysis that I've created. And vis populi, it means the force of the people. Right. Uh, so vis populi is is not a phrase that exists as far as I know. And vis in Latin has both the meaning of common will, force, the will, but also it can mean the violence, violence as destruction. Latin has another word for destructive violence, which is violencia. And we might speak of, you know, everybody, when we talk about violence, people think of, you know, Hannah Arendt, who, who works on violence and condense the years of violence. Hannah Arendt was talking only about violencia. I am suggesting that the will of the people, the force of the people, can also be about a representation of the problem of violence. So violence is, is a semantic space um, that is used by the people and that was used during the 2011 protests. I give a lot of uh, examples with posters, graffitis, etc. The cover of the book has uh, a reflection about how the state violence is unjustly uh, targeting certain people, vulnerable people, marginalized people, etc. So I wanted to reflect on this a uh, very smart, cunning strategy of the people, of the groups of people coming together, rejecting the Muhabarat state, the, the repressive state, autocratic state that is so characteristic of the Middle East. So this populi is, is a term that I coined to think uh, the, the, the constitution of violence, but also the counter reaction by the people to reject violence. But I hasten to say, sometimes also using you know, some some force, some physical force and some destruction. You know, we shouldn't forget, and I think everybody who has uh, a sense of the protest in 2011, that there were instances where, you know, the buildings of a ruling party or some police stations were burned down, the the the, the seat of the Muhabarat, of the Aminadawla, you know, the, the state security, etc., were destroyed, etc. And so there were there were instances where the People exacted some forms of destruction, but by and large, it was a democratic and self-regulating effort by the people to say, let's stop the unjust violence and let's address the problem of economic grievances, the lack of dignity, etc., etc. So to go to the, the question of the methodological approach, 
you know, the, the book is based on, on multi, on mixed methods. There is historical analysis, there is a compilation of data set about laws, association, campaigns, movement, etc. I did uh, ethnographic immersion in Tunisia, in particular in the south of the country, uh, not so much, you know, where Gafsa, etc., Kastrin, where a lot of people uh, studied uh, after 2011. I went to the south in Mednin, uh, uh, Tatawin, etc., and, and you know, meandering back to the center and that allowed me to get a sense from discussion with the people, uh, making pictures of graffitis, et cetera, posters, understanding what people were expressing about, you know, the need of, of change in the political system. So that's for Tunisia. In, in Yemen, unfortunately, it was impossible to go to Yemen. I had spent some time in Yemen when I was learning Arabic during my PhD, but I did interviews with Yemenis in the diaspora. Uh, I did interview a few Yemenis in Yemen, but over Zoom or WhatsApp. Um, and then a great amount of discourse analysis based on those interviews that I carried out and uh, analysis of the visual material, graffitis, videos, slogans, etc. So it's mixed methods, um, historical, qualitative, interpretive uh, approach. But, uh, you know, uh, in discourse analysis, we call like grounded theory. You know, I'm trying to not just propose the idea of this properly that I proposed, but uh, uh, that I created, but it, it comes out of the analysis of the material that I have gathered over the time and, and having this theoretical, if you want, dialogue. And I conclude with this, you know, theory, we often think of theory as abstraction, right? Um, philosophical thinking, conceptual thinking. Theory in Greek, means watching a theorist was somebody who was an ambassador who was sent from a city state to another and observed what was going on and reported back to the city state uh, the the theorist was belonging to and so theory for me is a way to look at things to look at process look at sensibilities and 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 it is deeply connected to everyday practice of self-representation and call for new forms of political representation just to wrap up the introductory part, can you tell us something about the sources that you have used for the book? And also if you can give us uh, a brief description of the Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring, I would start by the second part. The Arab Spring have to be read in the Arab uprisings. They're plural because each country had a different sets of grievance, et cetera. Although they had some commonalities because all of the revolts were about domestic processes largely. Um, so the uprisings ought to be read in relation to a long history of marginalization. Um, this is part of the long historical long durée perspective, which I narrate in the first two chapters, which is understanding how state society relation have been fraught and skewed toward certain groups, certain centers, putative centers, et cetera, that have enacted uh, some forms of violence towards the peripheries. And so the uprisings, you know, are forms of, there are efforts by the Yemeni people, by the Tunisian, by the Palestinian, by the Bahraini, et cetera, people who were excluded to occupy center stage, right? We all remember Tahrir, Kasbah in Tunisia, you know, uh, Lulu Square, Pearl Square in Manama. In Yemen, you also have, you know, like cities that are occupied. So there are people who were, you know, the, 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 the proletariat, the marginalized, the racialized subjects, the poor, uh, gendered person, etc., who come to the center and want to claim a share of governance to use a term which wasn't used at that time, but who want to have a direct say, uh, you know, the people who want to follow the regime. So that, you know, that's what the Arab uprisings were, but you have to read them in relation to this long history. And so in terms of the source, I'm trying to combine historical analysis again, trying, and so the book on, uh, focuses on Tunisia and Yemen, there are two countries, two republics, that I've chosen to concentrate on. Maybe we can talk about why this comparison, but I tried to find countries that were somehow with a similar history within the Ottoman Empire. They didn't have the same degree of encroachment as, say, Egypt or Palestine. And two republics, because it's important to have this 
realization that what I'm talking about, this populi, is something about the force of the people. It's a republican idea that there is some forms of populist sovereignty that ought to exist in a republic. You can't have that in a monarchy, right? So I look at those two countries and 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 reread the history. So the sources are secondary literature mostly, but also when I did interviews and field visits, I was sensitive to signs of the past. So looking at monuments, uh, memorials of past massacres or episodes of violence, etc. And also talking with people about the meaning of the past. So this is the source that I've used for the historical part. And then, as I said before, with the mixed methods of interviews and, and qualitative interpretative methods, I've tried to recompose the historical puzzles of fragmentation, marginalization, and this coming together. 2011, the Arab Uprising is coming together for a better social contract, rejection of past violence, and an effort to, I tried to show in Tunisia and Yemen, to try to make institution of coercions, so the legitimate uh, violence of the state that Weber attributes to a characteristic of the state. I'm trying to suggest that violence ought also to be managed by the people, right? And so it's the coming together for some uh, yeah. accountability mechanisms, adding accountability mechanism on institution of coercion in those countries. Now, contrary to many interpretations of the events back in 2011, but also uh, following, you know, what happened then, you argue that 2011 did not come out of the blue, but that. Uh, right for democratic participation was already active. Absolutely. I use, you know, there, there is, I refuse those, those sharp binaries. Um, I already mentioned some of them, cultural versus political representation, a peaceful Europe with a violent Middle East, etc. So I, I, I object to those sharp binaries. And often in citizenship theory or democratic theory, which, by the way, is based on Euro-American history, but it's area studies, but it's it's universalized as, you know, this is democracy, is this is what citizenship is. We often in that narrative have the defective view of citizenship. We do not have citizenship in the Middle East, hence the paternalism of the colonial era, hence the violence of imperialism encroachment, etc., but also the benevolent liberal agenda, say, uh, you know, let's help with NGOs, human rights, etc. Um, and, and earlier in my work about civil society in Palestine, I show that even if there is an international aid agenda, hegemonic, but not uniform, right? Um, there is a practice, there was a practice in Palestine of civil society organization. There were voluntary organization, grassroots organization that were connected to political parties and their occupation, etc. And then later on with the work on civil society and Gramsci, etc. You know, there are um, authors in Arabic traditions. Uh, Al-Farabi, the great second master, uh, talk of um, Madani. So he doesn't talk Madani, civil society, but he talks of some form of collecting, civil collecting, collective effort, etc. So, you know, there are histories and practice in the Middle East themselves of civil society, of participation and citizenship. So, but we do have a problem, a structural problem related to, you know, the Ottoman peripheries, the colonial practice, imperialism, and then the post-independence um, uh, failure to open up those regimes to have real uh, full participative mode in the Middle East. So I speak of latent citizenship in the Middle East. And in the historical part, I show where there are bursts of civic participation bottom up and ideas of republicanism, um, late 19th century, after World War One, after the 50s, etc. So, you know, we have to see citizenship as waves comes ebbs and flows of participation and so in that sense 2011 didn't come out of the blue um because there were those ferments for democratic participation in the region and there was um you know a catalog of grievances that were accruing and collecting where um 
augmenting over the years. And we know, for example, for the case of Egypt, you know, the strikes, Mahalal Kubra and those sectors, etc., in Tunisia as well. There were protests uh, in the mining sector in, in Yemen as well. There were joint meeting uh, parties, you know, an alliance of parties. So there were precursor signs of coming together. Remember, 2011 is coming together with some demands of decentralization, etc. So 2011 comes with a list of grievances that are re-articulated in an innovative manner because that's the novelty of 2011. It really gives a new dialectic of sense of unity as opposed to the fragmentation. Talking about 2011, I want to go back to uh, this populi. Can you take a snapshot for us of the dynamics that developed in 2011, particularly in Tunisia, which is your I would say, like, biggest case study in the book. And perhaps you can focus on the question of uh, space and violence. Great. Absolutely. Yes, space and violence is um, is something that, I, 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 as I suggested, 2011 is the coming together. 2011 in Tunisia is an awareness, a new imaginary, that people from various parts of Tunisia realize that somehow structurally they've been marginalized, although for different reasons. So if you're from the north, from Bizet, you're excluded differently than if you're from Siliana or Kef or Kasrin or Tatawin in the south, etc. And people were, because of the grip of the Muhabad state, the autocratic regime, and the same applies to, to Yemen, people didn't realize in in one point that in another point B, C, D, and E, people were in somehow similar situation. And so there is an awareness of a connective space in 2011. And in Tunisia, we have the famous caverns of freedom. So people coming from the peripheries, coming to the center to occupy. But there is also a dialectic of return of those caravans, people going back from the center, from Tunis, going in solidarity with the south, etc. And so, you know, some people say, well, this is political recuperation early on in, in the protests. But there was also the, the enactment of, of multidirectional participation and connection that exists uh, that trans transcended uh, national borders. You had, for example, in Tunisia, solidarity caravans, caravan solidarities with, with Libya, uh, with, with Gaza in 2014, with Palestine, right? So there is also a sense that out of the practice that people tried in Tunisia to create a more just political system, there is also something that can be done through people in movement, people suturing fractured space, etc. So in 2011 and, and after, we see uh, demands for rapidly, there is a question of uh, the need to decentralize. You know, under Ben Ali, a uh, highly concentrated presidential system, and with regard to state violence and violence, the organization of violence, Ben Ali had presidential guard, he had control. Uh, so as part of the presidency, he had control over the Minister of Interior, he was controlling everything. So people say we need to, well, let's arrest some of those people who were in charge, you know, who didn't flee with Ben Ali. So Ali Seriati, the head of the presidential guard, is put in jail, etc. And so there is a process of call for reforms because the 2011 uprisings were reformist, they were not revolutionary um, by and large. And so there are demands in the parliament and other instance for a deconcentration of power. And this was a way to actually make sure that we avoid the problem, the tendency of having one or two people trusting all authority over the institution of violence. So this is one big example in Tunisia where the reform calls for, you know, let's split the army, the Ministry of Interior, let's abolish the, the presidential guard, and let's introduce some mechanisms of uh, self-governance, also police syndicates, etc. So a deconcentration of the uh, force of uh, coercion. And then there are other, you know, like uh, tribunals that are set, et cetera, commission uh, to investigate past violence, which culminate later in the 
Instance Vérité et Dignité, which is a transitional justice, but that's much later. But I just also want to give a last example when it comes to citizenship, is that in Tunisia, from the time from colonial from the time of independence, so in the 1950s, 20% of citizens of Tunisian citizens didn't have a municipality as a structure representing them. So 20% of the population mostly living in the south, uh, in the desert zone, etc., uh, were under the control of the army. So this is a problem of what we call you know, universal municipalization. And it, with the revolution of 2011, people say, well, we need to have uh, more municipalities with their own resources to organize a local police force and taxation, etc. And indeed, after much effort in 2018, there is a Code de Municipalité des Collectivités, so a municipality law that is passed. And uh, 86, if I remember, 86 new municipalities are created. So this is a modest achievement, but at least now everybody in Tunisia has a form of local representation with a municipality and people have a direct say rather than relying on the army. So this is, again, you know, space and violence. It is about, you know, who manages those institutions of coercion? How can they be democratically made accountable? How the parliament can have a say? Uh, but also in the everyday life, having a municipality to which the citizens can go and complain. Well, we don't have electricity or we need to have this, etc. Um, so you know, th this is an example of the connective awareness of the need to have a space where people can participate and have a say in the management of, you know, the state, etc. environment. So, you know, uh, I, I talk of a lot of examples in, in Tunisia of uh, civic education, people organizing theaters, etc., the the caravans, etc. So there are all sorts of uh, enactment, uh, symbolic sometimes cultural festivals, etc. But it's a way to put people, citizen, on the map and give them a say in this question of vis populi, of more democratic forms of management of the state. Now, you mentioned reforms. And so moving along the book, you then talk about the limits of the reforms. Can you give us uh, descriptions of what happened to these reforms and obviously the limits of what uh, people try to achieve and also how institutions try to reform themselves. Absolutely. The, there, wasn't, there was a moment in each of the countries, Arab countries, there was uh, an attempt to push for a radical revolutionary agenda like a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary agenda of tabula rasa and having, you know, a new economic, political and social order. That never really took off seriously. You know, there were some countries where there were some intellectuals that were ready for that. But by and large, in most of the countries in Tunisia and, and, and Yemen, we see that there is a mechanism of legality that kicks in, namely uh, Ben Ali before leaving on 14th of January, on the 12th and 13th of January, established some commissions to tackle the problem of corruption and violence, etc. And so those commissions established in the dying days of the Ben Ali regimes are the legal basis out of which the reform will be carried out. So despite the calls for some tabula rasa, let's get rid of all the RCD, you know, the, the, the ruling party elites, etc. By and large, there is a mechanism of legality rather than revolutionary legitimacy that, that, that steps in. So this is a straitjacket for the revolutionary project. Uh, in Tunisia and in Yemen, but mostly in Tunisia, there were a coalition to, you know, who were really radical demands. Let's get rid of the transitional, you know, there's two governments, etc. They say those are, you know, people from the past, etc. So we need to, to introduce entirely fresh blood. This is this never happens. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the revolutionary pressure, the street pressure doesn't succeed on certain account. In Tunisia, there is a commission, uh, Yad Ben Ashur, who is appointed to deal with the 
tricky question of the constitutional order, right? If you have a revolutionary situation from the Soviet revolution, the American revolution, the Chinese, etc., there is a problem of, of, of legal continuity or radical break, uh, dual power or continuity. So there was a question of what do we do with constitution? So the, the commissions, the, 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 the Renouche one and two, the, the two uh, coalitions in power after the house thing of Ben Ali, appoint a prominent jurist who was an opposition figure Yad Ben Ashur to deal with this question of how do we organize transitional uh, power. And Yad Ben Ashur uh, is entrusted with a small commission to decide what's going to happen. But the people are extremely upset. And here we go back to the space and violence. People from the zones, from Sidi Bouzid, Kasserin, Gafsar, etc. in the south, they say, well, no, 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 hold on. You cannot just have like five jurists and decide what's going on. So lots of protests. This is Kasbah to, among others, or another wave of protests to say, we need to have a radical take and we need to include more people. That is more representation, right? Political representation. So this is a moment of pressure where the Ben Ashur Commission is, is uh, enlarged and there's more people coming. And so you have representative of the aggrieved regions and the family of the marches, etc. So in other words, rather than just five, six, eight jurists, we have 70 people representing the entire, right? The dialectic of unity of space, etc. And this gives to the Ben Ashur Commission the, um, the high reform, uh, uh, has a complicated name, which is worth uh, uh, reading because it, 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 it entails both the reference to the revolutionary objective and the reformist. So this is a way to say that the situation is muddled, but it is a reformist by and large, but there is the street pressure and that that somehow kicks in, et cetera. But the idea of self-representation is active also in um, in the electoral commission. So it's the parties that are regulating themselves, et cetera. So some of the ideas of like practice from below and self-representation are kept uh, for few months, few years, depending the security sector reform there are. I analyze those in the book in great detail until 2013-14. There are some efforts to um, make sure that this we don't slide back into strong presidential authoritarianism and muhabarat, etc. So we have those reforms. The people and representatives, direct representative, try to remain uh, uh, talkative and, and, you know, like inform the agenda, uh, the constitutional uh, commission, uh, parliament, uh, l'Assemblée Constituante Nationale, uh, uh, propose all sorts of remedies to concentration. And so there are new mechanisms that uh, guarantee more participation, such as deconcentration of power and decentralization which I illustrated uh, with a few examples, the full municipalization and the security sector reforms. I need to move uh, forward, even though there are so many other things that I would have loved to unpack, particularly about uh, this particular chapter. But I want to move to chapter five, where you talk about uh, the question of decentralization. And what struck me was that you're looking at Yemen and Tunisia and when I think about these countries today, I see very different trajectories, uh, you know, after 2011. And I was wondering if you can talk about the interplay between space and civic activism. And so that we also bring in uh, Yemen, which is the other case study in your book. Right. Yemen, it's true that so far we haven't talked that much. And maybe just to tag just the two line, two, two sentences about the limits of reforms, you know, in Yemen, there was an endogenous process of reform of revolution, right? Toppling Ben, ben Ali and, and calling with you know, big, big uh, a number of um, uh, people leaving the military, right? Um, defection, military defection, people joining the, the, the ranks of the protests. In Tunisia, we didn't have that much. The, the police disappeared. It was the army that stepped in, etc. But in Yemen, that was also a very strong element of the vis populi, which is that the legitimacy of the revolution was clear to people in the army and the, the security forces, namely that Ben Ali was corrupt and he was a 
a small clique and the system couldn't go on. Whether they were generally Democrat, that's a different question, but there's a high number of defection and people, military joined the ranks of this populi, right? So this populi is also the force of the people and the military were fed up with this system. In Yemen, so we have this indigenous uh, transformational process, but we should not kid ourselves. The transition, so-called transition in Yemen, was guided by the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council. And it is the GCC that dictated the terms of the part of Ben Ali. It is the GCC that decides when there will be election. The parliament is totally uh, sidelined. Uh, there is a, an agenda that is set uh, by the GCC. It is not the demand of the people when it comes, for example, to the reforms of the security sector. So the GCC is clearly an instance of external actor calling the shot. And so in that sense, Yemen could only be reformist, right? Because the parliament and the political parties, all the political parties are, or some of the political parties are excluded. Uh, the GCC has in the implementing mechanisms, just three parties that are involved, the big parties, uh, and the others are left out. So, you know, this is where we see that the reformist agenda couldn't go too far. But, uh, and this is here, you have to give credit to the UN Special Envoy, uh, Jamal Ben-Bramar, uh, who uh, insisted on keeping the legitimacy of the revolutionary forces on the street, right, of the civil society, women, and youth activists, to be part of some process of consultation. And this is how the famous National Dialogue Conference is established. And uh, for nine months, the NDC, the National Dialogue Conferences, bring 565 representatives from the entire Yemen. And here again, right, the space and violence, the parts that are particularly aggrieved, Sada, the north, where the Houthi come from later, uh, the southern uh, representatives are given a high quota in the National Dialogue. And the NDC de facto function as a quasi-parliament or as a quasi-constitutional assembly. Um, the parliament still exists in Yemen, it's sidelined, but the NDC is a space which has only consultative power. It can only make recommendations, but it made incredibly strong recommendation uh, uh, throughout and issued a series of uh, 1,500 recommendations in, in January 2014, the same day the uh, Constitutional Assembly in Tunisia adopted the new constitution. And in Yemen, the National Dialogue Conference proposes, for example, a federalist structure for the country so that the regions which generate their own resources, oil, etc., trade with harbors, etc., infrastructures can also benefit directly from those resources. And at the level of the security, they request to have a professional, accountable and democratic military forces with a rotation of power from the six regions. So this is a perfect example of how, you know, this properly is about redistributive justice, but also making sure that the, the army and the institution of coercions are responding to the demands of the different parts of the countries. So this is the tale of decentralization, which I explained in chapter five. Uh, both countries push for decentralization. So I take decentralization not in a technical term or what it means, etc., but as a symbolic enactment of the desire of the people of the coming together to reassemble, to rearticulate the difference between the different parts of the countries and the different forms of marginalizations, right? And so this is at the level of the geography, north, south, center, peripheries, but also sociologically speaking, in Yemen, you have the Akhdams, so or the, the, the lower caste, who also want to be uh, uh, have quotas, etc. So this is an example of the coming together and rearticulating of an active sense of citizenship. Moving to the last chapter, you discuss the questions of security, war, terrorism, all key words very common in the West. How do they connect with the Arab uprisings? And also, how do they connect with the question of citizenship? They are connected to citizenship as the antithesis, namely citizenship, if one buys into my argument of this properly, of this kind of virtuous attempt by the people to self-regulate and to 
make institutions of coercion accountable to parliaments, etc. Um, if we take citizenship to be that, so in an active sense of citizenship, security war and terrorism are instrumentalized by former elite or new political elite to thwart and end an active citizenship. And so in the last chapter, I talk of the strong man syndrome, the syndrome of, oh, we need a strong man to come and save, right? This is something that anybody in the Middle East has, has heard, right? uh, because it's discouragement by the lack of the reforms, the depth, and then, you know, the process um, stalls and, 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 and doesn't go forward, etc. So people are frustrated. People are frustrated. You know, democratic life is, is a long endeavor. It takes a lot of efforts, a lot of time, a lot of enactment uh, by the different parts. So, you know, th there are different reasons why things slow down. And some of those reforms that I mentioned with the GCC in Yemen couldn't go all the way the, 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 the street wanted because it had to be limited not to challenge the order of the gulf the monarchies etc so people feel hmm we can't go enough into this participation people are uh, then pushed back to the back seat and so people using the language of security war terrorism uh, re-enter the front stage and and push. This is what I call the resubjectivation of the citizen, of the active people. And so people use different language or use the bombs. In Yemen, right, the, 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 the coalitions led by Saudi Arabia after 2015, you know, come at a time when decentralization where uh, was to be implemented, right? But decentralization would have meant losing control over the oil resources and, you know, the, the, the infrastructure, etc. So I, I show how the series of policy changes, but also discursive changes, allow strong men, and here it's really a gendered uh, analysis of, of power that I, I, I offer, is that if the active citizenship was inclusive in terms of gender, uh, we had, you know, and in terms of the resistance to patriarchy, so younger generation, women, etc., social disadvantages group, they were active uh, in 2011 in the three, four years following. So it was an inclusive sense of citizenship. We returned to a paternalist tone of doing politics. So uh, it can be military leader in, in Yemen uh, with uh, the President uh, Sepsi, there was a language of the dignity of the state, so the state was not anymore about the people being active, but the state had to be enacted, pulsated from above, from Carthage, the presidential palace, etc. And the, the, the problem of uh, a state of emergency, uh, emergency provisions because of attacks of Al-Qaeda or terrorists, etc., was used to uh, slow down the reform. So in that sense, um, that's what general people speak of the Arab Spring, Arab Winter. I do not use this language, even if I use the strongman syndrome as opposed to active citizenship. I still believe that there is a sense of active citizenship that remains the expectation of decentralization. Uh, but those uh, political reforms or the actions to push for political representation are impossible and instead people concentrate on self-representation, cultural representation. So in Yemen, you'd see, I, I conclude the, the last chapters by looking at cultural productions of novel, poems, films, etc. And you could see that decentralization remains, remains a, a lifeline for Yemeni citizens. They hope that there will be local governance decentralization, but the political rhetoric the official one is one that used security threats, set terrorism, etc., as a way to push on the side those uh, requests for democratic participation. I have two more questions as we reach the end of our conversation. And the first is really about the conclusion of your work. So how would you wrap up this uh, long narrative? I wrap up in the same manner as, as I started. Remember that I wanted this book to be a theoretical contribution as well, right? Looking both at Euro-America and the Middle East. So I look back at theory and I propose to reconsider, or, you know, use the politics of comparison, you know, as a method to disenclave the Middle East. 
right? I, it's it's a book about Tunisia and Yemen, comparing those two states. And, you know, with the GCC case, we see that there is some form of external encroachment. We can talk now, of course, everybody is aware of how Saudi Arabia, the Emirati, now China putting pressure on Saudi and Yemen uh, and Iran to reconsider their uh, animosity. Uh, you know, you have this external dimension, kind of what I call encroachment. So, you know, we have a global elements at play, even if we're looking at Tunisia and Yemen, the, the rest of the globe is at play. So the theory, the looking at those two countries make us aware that we need to have a more transnational global perspective. So theory, my hope is that we can have, you know, a global theory out of the Middle East. So rather than just, again, testing theories of democratization or citizenship, applying concepts from Euro-America to the Middle East, I wanted to show that Arab people themselves have proposed new path for democratic participation. And they made us aware of the centrality of violence as violence understood as vis populi, as the force of the people, as, as a connective force, as potentially a democratic element that has to be considered, right? I, I, so I want to be aware that, you know, mindful that there is destructive violence, but there is a space around violence where we can rethink the social contract. And so this is the how to wrap up the book. I, I, I try to rethink the Middle East as a source of global theory. Um, and I also conclude the book as so looking at the Middle East, it's showing how this what I call the legacies, the embattled legacies of the Arab uprising of this coming together is still at play. I uh, have a few pages on the. Uh, Algeria and Sudan, the protests in 2018 in Sudan, 2019 Iraq, in Iraq, right? So some of the lessons and ingredients of the 2011 surprisings are consciously used by the demos, by their people. And this is another element of the conclusion. I hope that, you know, to show that there are valuable lessons, even if there are some bitter results. And lastly, in the last few pages of the book, uh, you look at uh, the post-2011. What happened next? And if you were to have a, a functioning crystal ball, what kind of <laughs> prediction you could make about the future? Uh, well, my crystal ball somehow, I think the connection is losing, so I, I can't use my crystal ball now. <laughs> I, I don't have a crystal ball and, you know, the, the, the language of prediction is always tricky. You know, one has to be careful with, you know, like drawing direct lessons from the past, etc. What I, you know, the, 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 there is some optimism in the book. There is also some pessimism. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, the neo-imperial encroachments are serious hurdles for participation, the degree in which uh, global actors are enmeshed and dictate what happens in, in Yemen, for example, with mercenaries, etc., coming from various parts of the world, is, is an indication that we have to be cautious and the militarization is, is a serious issue. Um, but but I, but I believe that there is some optimistic and some lessons that we can learn, but it's all about what people make out of those practice this knowledge this wisdom and you know i'm 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 faithful that the people which often is used in a, in a mythical language right we are the people or the people as the people want the fall of the regime or the people meant nothing and so the people couldn't change their regimes but the people exist when it comes together right and it's this coming together to go back to the bella ciao the awareness that with some, you know, a song, a protest, an occupation, a, a film, etc., a novel, you can create a sense of, like citizens from different parts of, of a country can come together. And that's the strong lesson. So more than, you know, the prediction, etc., I think we're going to have, you know, new elaboration of this dialectic of the state society, new dialectic of a sense of margins and uh, recomposed unity, new dialectics of, of participation. Clearly, we know that, you know, it is uh, extremely difficult to uh, be active as, you know, as people organizing campaigns, protests, etc., in certain countries, the level of, you know, the harshness of the baton of the repression is, is horrendous um, in certain countries, pretty much in most countries in the Middle East. 
But that doesn't mean that, you know, those lessons of the past from 2011 onwards can't be reactivated. And so this is, you know, the picture that I'm trying to offer. And the book has a wonderful graffiti um, that I from uh, an Italian researcher who allowed me to use it. And so those graffitis, you know, the palimpsest, they're different layers, they're different uh, narratives that come with them. And I also explain how, for example, in, in Tunisia, there's the El Camur protests in the south of the country. So you still have moments where, you know, there's grievance and people want to have, you know, a thunder for regional development, etc. It's never fully implemented, yet people keep using the same tools of occupation, coming together, etc., defection from the soldiers in the El Camur protests that I described at the end of the book. So, you know, those are micro little instances where people have understood that there is a way to block the cogs of an all-repressive autocratic regime, and people will use that in the future. So maybe that's a way to conclude. This was Benoit Chalin, author of Violence and Representation in the Arab Uprisings, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Benoit, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It's been a pleasure talking with you.